0: Open god 's word this morning, I wanted to spend a few minutes with Anthony and talk about his life and what God's in his life first of all, the last part of of, of see you again I mean we remember all the great things you have done. We believe that greater things are yet to come I mean that what a declaration Absolutely. for our, for our generation and for our time because you know sometimes I think with what's happened in our world um, I don't know about greater things yet to come sometimes. I mean, you know, we've all doubted that at least in the past year. And I know for you personally, uh, 2020 and maybe even before that, the last couple of years, have just been characterized by uh, some losses in your life, real losses. Um, how has your faith strengthened you to walk
1: through this last couple of years? Um... Well, first of all, hi. There you go. Thanks for having me here. I really appreciate being here in Wichita Falls. I don't even think I've ever been. Really? Yeah. I haven't been, and thanks for letting me be here. And, and um, yeah, to, to this is one of the first, you know, I haven't been out on the road for a year, basically, so to be able to worship with the audience in the room, oh, my gosh, this is a big deal. <laughs> so thank you for having me. But, yeah, over the past few years, right before 2020, when we all were, you know, all, all everything came to a halt for all of us. Um, we just experienced, like you mentioned, great loss in our family. We lost eight family members over the course of 16 months, but and it wasn't, it, it, all of them were unexpected. There was no like, oh, we, we have time to, it was just like, boom, 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 this is, it felt like the twilight zone, really. And I, I uh, Was really struggling because I'm the one in my family, even though I'm a preacher's kid and all that stuff. I, preacher's kids always are like one degree from crazy, and that's me. So I'm 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 the one who's like struggling. No, not your kids, though. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I was relating. I, oh, you You're were relating. Oh, okay. Well, some preacher's kids are mm. one degree from crazy, and, and I had. I've struggled with my faith in general because my feelings run. I mean, I, I look like a linebacker. I tell people, but I have the emotions of a ballerina some days. I'm like, <laughs> can y'all feel this? This is amazing. That's kind of me. And, and I, but with with that comes when trouble comes in my life, like losing eight family members and then going into a pandemic. My feelings start to take over, where I feel left and I feel lost and I feel abandoned. And God, how you know what are you doing? Like, why would you, in my moms like my mom and dad planned when they were 70 to then slow down and start traveling the world and my mom made it 30 days past her 70th birthday because of a rare cancer diagnosis that came out of nowhere and you you see somebody serve the lord their whole life and then that happens and it it shakes you to your core and i have had to um really question do you believe this or not that that's what's happened but i I mentioned in one of the other services uh I used to resent the the mundane, like the, the church every week. I mean, being a preacher's kid, it was church three times a week. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but as, well, there's a movie called The Karate Kid. You remember that movie? Does anybody yeah. remember that movie? Yeah. Like the old one from growing up, not the new one the kids think is the original. Not, you know what I mean? <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. And uh, Mr. Miyagi was teaching Daniel's son. He, he wanted to learn karate so bad. And one of the first things he did is he handed him a paintbrush and he had him like, painting fences. And then he told him, he handed him like these two pads and had him waxing cars. You remember that? The wax on, wax off. Uh, somebody did it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yes. That, that happened. And, and, uh, he had him continue to do it. He was ready to learn karate. And he said, no, the, all the fence, like the whole thing and all these cars. And he was getting angry at Mr. Miyagi. And finally he was like, I want to learn karate. That's what I came here for. And Mr. Miyagi threw a punch and he immediately went like this. Like his reflex was to do it. He threw another one and he went like that and he did, And I've realized that the things that I'm resenting—I've resented growing up—that God was doing in my life that I thought were mundane, because I was ready for the big thing. He was teaching me how to fight. And in those years where I lost, we lost most a lot of our family, and with 2020 and everything we went through, I didn't realize that I had faith reflexes inside of me until I had to fight at that level. So I, I don't resent. Um, my faith is stronger, as odd as that is to say after all that. I wouldn't think I'd ever say that. And I don't resent the the mundane things um, in trying to get to the big thing because the mundane things are trading you for the big thing. That's, that's a great word. Um, but to, to to take the Karate Kid
0: metaphor, you had kind of a Mr. Miyagi in your, like he lived with you. Yeah. He, he raised you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, your dad, tremendous Bible teacher, just a man who has served the Lord so faithfully. Of course, I've heard him say your mom's really the rock.
1: She at, definitely at, the, is. At, yeah. at, at
0: home, but what was it like? I mean, you're growing up in this house. Your dad isn't just pastor of a very large church in in Dallas, mm-hmm. but he has an
1: international ministry,
0: yeah.
1: um, and I mean, there's a spotlight on that that's glaring. Yes, and I and I remember sometimes growing up being like, I didn't ask for this spotlight. Like it just yeah. like I, I have to be in it because my dad's in it, and so I. I i didn't love that, but what I did love was that my parents were the same at home as they were at church and in ministry, because otherwise i would be I wouldn't be here with y'all today. I, I would be like, mm, yeah. this isn't for me um, but he he's just a faithful man who grew up he grew up very simple, he comes from like the, the inner city of Baltimore, like my grandfather stayed in that house until he just passed away. One, one of the eight was our grandfather, and he just is an anchor, like my dad was raised by an anchor and he that's what he believes is that our faith is, is first. Ministry isn't first and building some big thing was not first. So yeah. that's how I held on to sanity.
0: <laughs> I learned something new about you. A uh, new singer, worship leader, recording artist mm-hmm. knew about the voice. A um, long time ago, yes. But you <laughs> played uh, Beast in a production of Beauty and the Beast a live action production in the Hollywood Bowl. I mean, yes. of all places, that's a pretty prominent arena. I mean, it's a great place acoustically to to do a musical. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're moving in that, you, you raised kind of in the church, but you're now moving and interacting with uh, a lot of people in the recording industry who are far from God. And I'm sure in Hollywood and in the that industry, there are good and faithful people who love Jesus. I don't want to throw everybody under the bus, but there are also people who are just kind of okay. You're a Christian. Uh, just don't bring that around me, or even people who are hostile to your faith. How, how is God? How do you see God using you in that setting?
1: Well, I just getting put in those scenarios, which is crazy. Uh, how that whole scenario happened? Did any of y'all see the movie The Greatest Showman? Did yeah. Y'all remember that? Yeah. It's just such a fun, fun movie, and I sang something on Instagram, and Hugh Jackman, the star of that movie, we all know Wolverine, he saw it and reposted it, and the writers from that movie saw it, and the girl who got, sings that song in the movie got sick and couldn't sing it at some Oscar party, so they had me come sing it, because they saw me on Hugh's thing, and the director of Beauty and the Beast was there. So it was the most random, it was the most random, it's the typical how it works, but what has happened is I've gotten thrown into scenarios, because that felt like being thrown into a scenario. I was at the gym and got a call from these guys, Um, been thrown into scenarios where I am sitting down with people of influence. Like I remember at Beauty and the Beast sitting backstage with Kelsey Grammer, who was Lumiere that night. And um, he just like, so what do you do? Like, tell me what's up. And I get to explain my faith on a, or our faith on a, on a personal level uh, to people who would never come in here. Like, I don't don't know about him specifically, but uh, another instance was sitting down at Christina Aguilera's house for dinner for Christmas dinner when I was on The Voice and her asking about my faith. And I thought, I don't even know how to explain my faith without sounding like us, like lamb that was slain, you know, like that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm like, she's gonna think I'm nuts if I start talking <laughs> like that. So it has challenged me and it has reminded me that we are not the salt of the shaker. We are we are salt of the earth, that's what we're here for. And we are, you know, coming to church and not doing anything outside of here is like watching a football team just huddle. like. What difference does the huddle make? So that's what LA has allowed me to do. And again, I come home often because LA not the Bible Belt. Just in case y'all are wondering, <laughs> it's a little different. But but uh, yeah, yeah, but I but, but you know, look, we, we send
0: missionaries around the world to different cultures. And the way I see your ministry developing, it's almost like you're a cultural missionary.
1: I've not heard that. Until in,
0: in, you just in, said that. In, in that culture, into that pocket of people. I mean, if I show up at Christine Aguilera's living room to explain the gospel to her, I'm getting arrested. Okay, okay, so yeah, yeah, security. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, that went the wrong way. Um, but but, um, but for, for God to use you in that way is just incredible. And thank you so much for sharing your talent yes. with us today. Thank
1: you for letting me be here with y'all. For real, I really appreciate uh, you trusting me. God bless here. you. Yeah.
0: Let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 is where we're going to focus today. I have to be honest uh, and tell you that when I started this series of messages, I thought I would be a lot farther along by now. Uh, It's taken a little while to get here, but we're going to finish chapter 1 today. Uh, That's pretty incredible. Um, And this morning, um, what we're going to talk about is how do we respond when we're being watched? I am a child of the 80s. Well, I actually came into adulthood in the 80s. I graduated from high school in the 80s, graduated from college in the 80s. And uh, so every now and then driving down the road, I listen to 80s music. I, I like 80s music. It's, 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 it's my jam, okay? It's, it is what I relate to. And I do not understand some modern music, but I, I love 80s music. And the other day I'm riding along and I hear this song Uh, that I'd heard, obviously, in the 80s. It wasn't like a favorite song, but I just listened to the words kind of again to it. By the way, when you parents do that, sometimes you're like, I didn't know what that song, that's what that song was about. You know, maybe we shouldn't listen to that with the kids in the car. Um, But this particular song, Michael Jackson was on the song, but he sang backup of all things. The King of Pop, the best-selling rock and roll artist of all time, sings backup on a song by a little-known group called Rockwell. And the words to the song were, I always feel like somebody's watching me. Some of you, like that musical memory went off in your head right there. You're kind of singing that in your head right now. Well, here's the reality Someone is always watching you as followers of Christ. We are being watched as a pastor I am acutely aware that I am being watched most of the time Um, A few years ago my wife and I went to get our car washed and they did a terrible job And so I told the guy you did a terrible job uh, in In a nice way and wanted him to redo it, which he refused to do so I asked to see a manager And I told him, your people did a terrible job. I want you to redo it, which he refused. And then I got angry. And my wife whispered in my ear, remember who you are. I mean, it's like you need to remember how to act because somebody is watching you. Well, here's what I want you to know. Somebody is watching you whether it's at your school or on your team or at your workplace or as you are a spectator on the sidelines at a soccer or baseball field, someone is watching you. And the old question was they were watching us to say, is it real? The new question is, will he or she fail? That's what they're looking at. In our world today, there are a group of people who are watching and doubting and even scoffing sometimes at the faith. Christians are being scrutinized, criticized, and demonized for living out our faith biblically. We need to know how do we respond when we're being watched, which is all of the time. Well, the Apostle Paul makes a shift in verse 27. He's been talking about himself, He's been talking about his chains, about his captivity. And legitimately so, he's informing the church at Philippi of what's going on in his life. That's why he wrote the letter. But now he shifts to an encouragement for them. He wants them to hear his heart for them. And he uses some imagery that is very much from military language, which would have fit right in with where they were. The city of Philippi was established as a colony of Rome. That means everyone who lived there was a Roman citizen. Now, that wasn't the case throughout the entire Roman Empire. Citizenship was a rare and really honored uh, commodity. But everyone in Philippi was a citizen. And the reason for that is because of their service to the Roman Empire. You see, Philippi was established as a retirement community, for a legion of the Roman army. They had fought a lot of battles, won a lot of wars, and the emperor said, I'm gonna retire you, give you a nice life, we're gonna build you a city. And the architecture of Philippi looked like a miniature Rome. So they were very proud of their Roman citizenship, very proud of their service to the empire, and very proud of their, their Roman connection. And so with this military veterans community, Paul shifts his language, to kind of a military metaphor that they would have readily understood. And he communicates to them four important instructions for how to live when someone's watching you. Let's look, read the text together. Look at verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents which is a sign of destruction for them but of salvation for you and that too from God for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake and experience the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. The four instructions that Paul gives this church are very applicable to us, and here they are. First of all, when you're being watched, live consistently. He says, I want you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The word conduct or conduct in verse 27 is the word "politeuo" from the Greek New Testament. We get our word politics from that, and it refers to being a good citizen. It literally means be a a good citizen of wherever it is you live. Now, again, he's appealing to their Roman citizenship. And he says, I want you to, to live as a good citizen worthy of the gospel. Because Paul is going to say to the people at Philippi, you need to remember that while you may be proud of your Roman citizenship, your highest allegiance isn't to Rome. In chapter 3, verse 20, he's going to say this. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of God first. Now, it's not wrong to be a patriotic American. It's not wrong to fly your Texas flag. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But remember that our highest loyalty, our our greatest affection, and the most important virtue of our life is that we live as citizens of the kingdom of God, that our conduct is worthy of the gospel. I don't know if you've ever traveled to another country or not, but you don't want to fall prey to the syndrome that people refer to as the ugly American. That sometimes Americans show up in places and and we compare, you know, their, their national treasures to ours, and we, we, ours is better. And we're arrogant sometimes, and, and sometimes Americans can be loud and demanding. And, and we violate all the rules of their culture. And so we don't honor our country when we do that. We may think we are, but we actually diminish it in the eyes of a watching world. Well, when our conduct doesn't measure up to the gospel, we diminish our citizenship, which is in heaven. Our kingdom of God, citizenship. The word worthy there comes from the word for weight. And it's a picture of a weighted scale. And he says, if I put the gospel on one side of the scale, then I want to put your conduct on the other side of the scale, and they need to be even. I want your conduct, the way you live your life, what you portray in the workplace, at school, what you portray in your friendships, in the social arena, when you do business, I want that conduct, the way you conduct yourself, to be worthy, to be weighty along with the gospel. What does that mean? Well, if we're going to have conduct that is worthy of the gospel, then we need to know, what's the gospel all about? First of all, the gospel is all about love. Does love portray your conduct? Is your conduct, is the way that you live your life lived out of the overflow of the love of God that has come in you and now allows you to love other people? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, John wrote, If someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. Now that is strong language, but remember, that's not John's opinion. That's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. Our conduct needs to be permeated with love for others. Yes, love for other believers, but love for people who are far from God, who are outside the fellowship of the church, and love for those who are even hostile to our faith. Our conduct ought to be always filled with love. What about forgiveness? The gospel's all about forgiveness. If we're going to have conduct worthy of the gospel, then since the gospel's all about forgiveness, we ought to be forgiving people. Forgiven people should be forgiving people, not holding a grudge, not, not seeking a vendetta, not, not pushing people away and never redeeming or never forgiving and allowing them back in. That is conduct that's unworthy of the gospel. When we push people away, we're to forgive one another and forgive people who offend us and wrong us. What about acceptance? Now, yes, Christians are called to call sinners to repentance, and we should do that. But Jesus didn't push people away for their sin. He, He brought people in and showed them his love and his compassion. Does that portray your life? Is your life filled with living consistently for the gospel? Living consistently is one of the greatest witnesses for your faith. Secondly, he says, I want you to live cooperatively. In verse 27, he moves from the language of citizenship to that military language that I talked about when he says, here's what I want, whether I come to see you or or I I don't get to get there, here's what I want to know about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, that you are standing firm. Now, that is language that a retired Roman soldier would have understood. Because that is the picture of a Roman soldier on the battlefield. And they had these cleated uh, boot-like sandals that they would dig into the dirt. And they had their shield in their left hand and their sword in their right hand. And they stood on the battlefield. And when the enemy attacked, they did not back down. They did not retreat. For us as believers, we cannot compromise the truth of the gospel. When people are watching, do not compromise the truth of the gospel. Be loving, be forgiving, be accepting, but we don't compromise God's word and God's truth. And so Paul says, I want you to stand firm. But here's the truth about a Roman soldier a Roman soldier was to stand firm, but a Roman soldier never stood alone, ever. They didn't fight as a single soldier, they fought as a group. The Romans developed a military strategy called the phalanx. And the phalanx was the design of their shields almost interlocked. And so there would be a line of Roman soldiers with their shields all put together and it looked like a wall that the enemy had to, had to uh, somehow get through in order to defeat them in battle. And so when he says stand firm, what he's saying is don't retreat or you let the enemy in And when you let the enemy in, all of your your brothers on the line, all of your your fellow soldiers are then put in jeopardy and in danger and and maybe even to defeat. And so Paul says, first of all, I want you to stand firm. And then he said, striving together. The word there has a a picture about it from the Roman naval battles. They didn't have gunpowder to fire a cannon off of Off of the deck of their ship in the ancient world the way you won a naval battle was the roman ships had this had this long spear like bow And it was designed to penetrate the hull of an enemy ship poke a hole in it sink it That's the way you won a naval battle and so In order to propel the ship they would have these rowers slaves below deck and they would all row the ship in unison in order to build up speed to propel that. When he says striving together, it's a picture of those slaves straining at the oars to propel that ship and to sink the ship of the enemy. That's the picture. If you go to Oklahoma City um, in the next few weeks, you might see something. There is an Olympic training center in Oklahoma City. It's a training center for rowing. It's those little narrow, skinny boats that either have four people or uh, eight people in them. I think they also have a competition with two people. Uh, But you have an oar, you know, oars on the left, oars on the right. And those uh, eight people have to row in synchronicity. They have to hit the water at the same time, pull with the same force, or the boat goes off course and you lose the race. Well, that's what Paul's saying. He says, I want you to strive together together. I want you to be of one spirit, of one mind. What he's saying to us is, I want you to be united with other believers. Unity is a precious commodity. Jesus prayed that we'd be united. In John chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus prayed, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, unity doesn't mean unanimity. It doesn't mean we all think exactly the same thing. Unity also doesn't mean that we have to be always uh, uniform. That we have the same preferences. That we like the same things. But what unity does mean is harmony. That we work together. We agree on the essentials. And we work together even if we disagree on some minor things. I love the The statement from the Reformation. In essentials, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity or love. So live cooperatively. Third, live courageously. Live courageously. Look down at verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents. The word alarmed in this passage is really an interesting word. It means obviously to be frightened, but it came from the Roman battlefield again, when horses were used by officers typically. And they would ride onto the battlefield, but if you had a horse that was easily spooked, that was easily frightened, then that Greek word would be used. It literally meant battle shy. A horse that was, that was frightened in the battle, in the chaos and the clanging of swords and the dust of, of, of a battle, that that horse would get easily frightened. And he says, I don't want you to be that way because you are in the middle of a battle. Don't get alarmed, don't get spooked by the battle. When I was a kid growing up, there were always horses around. Now, I am not a horseman. I am far from a cowboy. I am all hat and no cattle when it comes to that kind of stuff, okay? But we rode horses as kids, and occasionally there's some horseback riding on a vacation or something, but uh, I can remember I had a friend who had this horse, and I think they bought this horse from a rodeo company that went out of business because this old horse, if you ever touched it behind the saddle, like you, you popped it on the back, on, on the back quarter to, to, to kick it up and get going, he would lock his front legs and start bucking. I mean, he just, you could not touch that horse on, on like behind the saddle. And I learned that the hard way. Okay. On one occasion, I'm riding his horse and we rode from my friend's house back to my mom and dad's house. And we were coming through the pasture and we came around our barn and my dad was a pig farmer. And there were weeds growing up, kind of on the backside. And we weren't paying any attention. And all of a sudden, this big old pig was laying up under some of those weeds. And we frightened the pig. And so the pig jumped up and snorted real loud like a, only a pig will make a noise. I will not emulate that. But it it frightened my horse. And all of a sudden, that horse went one direction and I went another. I mean... Uh, Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'm a good enough cowboy. I know if you get thrown off a horse, you get back on. So I got back on for 15 minutes, and I never rode that horse again. I I mean, twice is enough for me to get thrown off the same horse. Well, here's what Paul is saying. He says, I don't want you to be like that. I don't want you to be like a a battle-shy horse, a, a horse that's easily frightened. You are in a battle. Paul would say, but I want you to live courageously. And Paul even says we have opponents in this battle. I want you to remember this, that we are in a battle and we do have an enemy. But our enemy is not flesh and blood. We fight against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. That's what the Bible says. But the Bible also tells us that sometimes Satan deceives people. He lies to people. He tells people things that are not true. He inspires people to acts of evil and sin. And Paul would declare those people our opponents. And What he would say is, don't be alarmed by your opponents. Actually, when they come against you, Paul says it's a sign. It's not a good sign for them. It's a sign of destruction. It's a good sign for you because if they're opposed to the message of God and opposed to you, then you're on God's side. It's a sign of your salvation. What Paul says is don't be alarmed. Be courageous. Because if you're filled with fear, you will never be a faithful witness. It will not happen. But bold, brave believers make a difference. Bold, brave believers who will speak the word of God with boldness, who will represent Jesus Christ well, make a difference in our world even sometimes when you're the only one. A few years ago, I got to uh, go to Rome, back when we traveled and went places and did things. Um, And in Rome, if you go to Rome, go to the Colosseum. I mean, that's what you're going to do, right? You you go see the touristy stuff. So we went to the Colosseum and we took the Colosseum tour. And on the Colosseum tour, our tour guide told a story which I researched and found to be true. Sometimes tour guides can stretch it just a little bit. But this story is true. You know that in the Roman Colosseum, there were the gladiator games. And it was blood sport. When a gladiator was defeated, the emperor either gave a thumbs up that this man had fought valiantly or a thumbs down, put him to death. And most of the time, the crowd chanted, death, death, death. They wanted to see blood. You also know that for some time, that Christians were brought into the Colosseum to be slaughtered by gladiators and wild animals. It was blood sport. And Roman society was a bloodthirsty society. But in 312 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. He became a Christian. And when he did that, Christianity wasn't, was no longer a persecuted religion. It was an accepted religion. And Christians were no longer slaughtered in, in the Colosseum. So, um, the games of the gladiators continued even while Constantine was emperor. But on one occasion in about 400 AD, there was a Syrian monk who came to Rome, and all these people are going to the Colosseum, and so he decided to go and see what this is all about. And when he went in, he was appalled by this violence. I mean, these are people created in the image of God, and they're slaughtering one another for sport. And something is just deeply wrong with this. And so Telemachus actually climbed over the wall of the Colosseum, went down onto the floor, threw his hands up. The people went silent here with this... Crazy man had to say, and he said this, in the name of Christ, forbear, forbear. That word means stop. Stop this madness. And of course, the crowd being silent that moment, then they began to boo Telemachus. They began to boo him and throw things at him. And finally, one of the gladiators just ran a sword through him and he bled to death right there on the floor of the Colosseum. And some people watched that. And they began to file out of the Colosseum. Now the next day they had the gladiator games. But fewer people came. And within a matter of months nobody came. And they shut down the gladiator games in the Colosseum. Because one person stood up. And was willing to risk it all. To say this is wrong. It needs to stop. And one person God used to change a culture. I'm going to tell you. You could be that one person. God wants to use us. If we will stand up with courage. And boldness and bravery. And not be alarmed by our opponents. To change our world. Fourth and finally. Live convincingly. Live convincingly. Now you say Bob. I thought that's what the first three were going to do. Well there is a final aspect of this. That is even more convincing than the first three. But you're not going to like it. As a matter of fact, some of you may just outright reject it. You're like, okay, these first three things, I'm kind of going along with that. But this last one, I'm not going there. No, I don't want that. Here's what Paul said. To live convincingly, not only must your conduct measure up to the gospel and you work with other believers cooperatively and you stand with courage, But you also do this. Look at verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in him. But also to suffer for his sake. The convincing proof that Paul talked about was our suffering. Now look, nobody wants to suffer. Nobody signs up for suffering. But Paul would say to us. If we're going to follow this line of thought that he's presenting, that soldiers suffer. and In the book of 2 Timothy, he writes in 2 Timothy 2, 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ. Paul would say that suffering is a convincing proof to a watching world of our faith. Look back at that text. I want you to see something. Paul says our suffering is actually a grace gift. For to you it has been granted. The word there is, the root word is charis, grace. It's a gift. And here's what he says. It's a gift to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him. Our faith is a gift. We we like that part of this. But as equally as our faith is a part, our believing is a part, he says our suffering is a part. A little bit later in this letter, Paul is going to write in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, the goal that he has in life, his pursuit in life. He says, here's my pursuit, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed even to his death. Paul says to you and to me, that there is a gift that none of us want to unwrap. But it is a powerful convincing truth that our faith is real and that is the way we suffer. Now in this case he's referring to suffering by persecution. But there, there's other kinds of suffering. And I'm going to tell you I've watched something as a pastor that is real. And I've watched it in two men in this, in this church in the last few months. Two members of our deacon fellowship that I've been very close to. One of them has gone on to heaven. His name was Victor of Venus. And he suffered with cancer. And and the way that he suffered, I'm going to tell you this. I, I looked him in the eye the last time I got to talk to him. And I said, Victor, if this is the last time I get to talk to you, I want you to know something. When it comes my time to go, I want to go with the attitude that you're going with. He loved people. He had faith, and even even in those last moments of his life, he had joy, real joy. And a guy named Dave Nave, who is still, we're still praying for a miracle for Dave. You could do that. But Dave looked our deacons in the eye last Tuesday night at our monthly deacons fellowship meeting, and he said, he said, man, I I just want you to know I'm still praying for a miracle, but if it means I go to heaven, I I just want to see Jesus. I'm good with that. I mean, his body is wrecked and ravaged with cancer and with the effects of the chemotherapy. And in those moments with medical personnel and doctors and nurses and therapists, they have looked at him and they have said, you're suffering, but you've never turned your back on your faith. And it is a convincing proof to a watching world when we suffer well for Jesus. Live convincingly. See... When we suffer, there are a couple of things we need to remember. We never suffer alone, ever. We never suffer alone, humanly speaking, because God gave us the gift of the church. If you just show up here on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock and hear a sermon and some songs and leave, and that's all your Christian faith kind of amounts to, I need you to know something. You're missing out on something that's really, really significant and important. And what is important is the fellowship of the church, because we are all going to suffer All of us are going to walk through dark days and you need a group of people to come alongside you and you're going to find those people in the fellowship and community that is built in life groups in our church. You are to never suffer alone because God gave us the gift of the church. But God also gave us another gift and that is himself, the Holy Spirit. And when you put your faith in Christ, No matter how dark the days get, you will never be alone again because the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of God is in you the moment you believe. And for some of you, maybe you need to say, you know what, that's what I'm lacking. I need to put my faith in Jesus it's been granted to me, this gift to believe. And so I want to put my faith in Jesus. And if you want to do that this morning, we're going to give you the opportunity in just a few minutes. You can slip out from where you're standing as we worship in just a moment. I'll be here at the front. Some of our pastors will be at the front if you want to pray with somebody. We'll, lead you. we'll go to a quiet place if you, need, if you want, and we could lead you to faith in Christ today. What I want to do is pray for us, and then we're going to stand up and sing a worship song together. Father, we give you this moment. We trust you in it. I pray for those in this room who need to stand firm in their faith, for those who need to say, I'm not going to compromise, but I'm going to lovingly stand firm for what I believe. I pray for strength for them. I pray for some of us who have backed away from conflict and from the fact that we don't want to be, we don't want to, receive what this world offers every time we take a stand, and that is punishment and criticism and scoffing. But Lord, help us to stand with without fear. Father, I pray for those in this room who need to trust Jesus today, that this will be the day of salvation for them. In Jesus' name, amen.